do we have any follow-up today joe we i don't think we do no we haven't gotten any more emails and although we would welcome emails from any of our listeners so that's so this is absolutely wrong what is that we don't have any follow-up we don't no we we have we got a huge shout out last week huge oh yeah but that's not an email you were asking me if we had emails well but you exchanged some messages right I don't remember this at all. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Christian, uh, I'm in my late 40s, okay? It do, nothing works as well as it used to, including my brain. <laughs> you, you know, I turn, I turn older tomorrow, like everybody else. But, tom- but, 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 a, you know, it, yeah, you tomorrow, a milestone I'm 42. Tomorrow? I'm going to be 42 tomorrow. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah, well, you know. So are you, you referring to uh, Kim Krawick's post at... A faculty lounge is that how you say it is that the official pronunciation Ooh, I, she has not confirmed her doug berman do you know do you know kim craywick at duke uh i know the name but uh i'm one that wouldn't even assume it's a her because kim could go either way couldn't it that's so true it does happen to be a her um, so i'm guessing you don't know how to pronounce her last name for sure uh, that is true, and even people whose names I know how to pronounce, I don't always pronounce them correctly. So I'm. <laughs> you really no help. <laughs> it, it, yes, in fact, I specifically took Latin in high school because I need a language to be dead to minimize <laughs> the likelihood that I will butcher pronunciation. <laughs> you know, there that's no, no guar- wrong pronunciation. That's, that's right. no guarantee. I uh, in college, I uh, like everyone else in my college, I had to study ancient Greek the first two years that I was there. And one of the kids in my class was uh, he was from either Brooklyn or the Bronx, very thick New York accent. And one day, our Greek professor, w- with great exasperation, turned to, to, to this guy and said, you know, and he used his name, which I won't use, um, you know, blah, um, uh, ancient Greek is a dead language. Uh, therefore, we don't know precisely how it was pronounced. But I'm certain it wasn't pronounced anything like you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, so I managed to stop uh, taking Latin at a point when I wouldn't have anybody who would be likely to assume I could take such criticism. So, uh, <laughs> right. Nice. Ah. Well, all right. So before we get going with the, uh, with our guest for today, which is, this is, this is the, hu- this is a huge episode, I think, but, it is. Um, it is. uh, so we got, like we said, we got a huge shout out from the, on the faculty lounge blog. Um, uh, because we talked last week to Lisa Milet about egg quote unquote donations and, uh, their st- status as property and their taxable status and all kinds of cool things, right? which was kind of a follow-up to a symposium they had done on that blog, uh, which we linked up in the show notes for last week, and we'll, we'll link up again. And uh, Kim was nice enough to uh, link to the show on the Faculty Lounge blog and, and link to all of our old episodes as well, uh, individually, wow. which is w- really great. And because we've had a lot of great uh, guests on here, a lot of uh, really fun conversation. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess there was one other thing I wanted to touch on though that's related to that and that's um we are getting a lot of listeners that way where people will like link to a particular show or something like that and uh and and then we'll get people who click on that link come yeah. to our website and you can see all the show notes on the website and you can play the show either in the player or you can download it there um but and that's, I, not, that's not the best way to listen I imag- to it though. yeah see i imagine that people are sitting in front of their computers and they listen to like the first 10 minutes and you know it's like a, you know, let's face it they're probably in their office it's probably some awful desktop computer uh, you know, it's maybe they're even using Internet Explorer. I don't know. They've got these old like Packard Bell style <laughs> computer speakers. And, you know, who knows what kind of setup people are dealing with right. or fighting against. Um, but that's no way to live. So by far, the best way to listen to the show is find yourself a podcast app. 
yeah. on your on your phone, on your tablet, or or even on your computer. But uh, the phone is a great way to do it. And there are a whole bunch of great podcast apps out there. Maybe we'll link up a few in the show notes. Yeah, Castro um, is the one that I like, and it's on my phone. And you know, I've I've been uh, because you can turn it on uh, in the car before you start driving somewhere. You can just listen to part of a podcast on your way back and forth to work or whatever, some trip you're taking, whatever. It's just so convenient. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's like listening to a radio show. Uh, it's awesome. I've, I've used Instacast, Downcast, Castro. Marco Arment's coming out with this new Overcast sometime. But the, the point is that you that that you subscribe to a show. All you got to do in one of those apps is just search for Oral Argument. You'll find us. You click subscribe. Yeah. And then like magically, every week, be just, <laughs> a new show just lands on your phone. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. You can play it at any time. No, Doug, do you, are you, uh, do you listen to different podcasts? You know, I'm loving that you are starting this way because it's one of the things that in the tech-addled world that I live in is not something I spend nearly as much time doing well as I would like to. And so uh, not only am I uh, grateful to be part of a podcast now, but particularly to get some advice from you all about how best to uh, operationalize my desire to be subscribed to all the right podcasts, of course, starting yeah. with this one. <laughs> of course, this one. This one should be at the top of the list. But there are a whole bunch of great podcasts out there uh, for all kinds of different interests. If you're a tech person, especially, there are a lot. But there's, yeah, especially you know, if you listen to uh, Radio Lab, it's a fantastic show yes. on, on public radio. And the podcast, I think, is just the best way to listen to that You know, in an app. Yep. It's, where, it's with, uh, with you wherever you go. A bunch of great podcasts on Five by Five that I listen to. I mean, they're just you know, you search for something, you're gonna, you have an interest, you're gonna find it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, even, I even download the uh, Supreme Court oral arguments. So I do a little um, Supreme Court discussion group uh, with some um, kind of a volunteer student organization. They kind of come to the house so for uh, for dinner every couple of weeks, and we talk about the latest cases, and and oftentimes we talk about a. Uh, uh, an argued but not yet decided case. And so what we do is we read the briefs and listen to the oral argument. I usually load up those oral arguments in my podcast app, and sometimes I play them at 2x. Awesome. Yeah, you can hit the little 2x button. They go twice as fast. And the funny <laughs> thing is that some of the justices, I won't say which, they actually sound normal at 2x. <laughs> they sound, they sound right. like a normal conversation. And their initials are Stephen Breyer. No, um. no that's, that, that's actually not the one that I had in mind. Oh, okay. No. Um, oh, no. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel some kinship with Breyer because like like – him, I usually come up with ridiculous hypotheticals when I try to. So playing it at two X does not make his hypotheticals any less ridiculous. I found, <laughs> it just but makes it, it makes them it makes them go faster. But but I I think they're great. You can just get to more of them in less time. Right? That's, that's right. What I, but that's that, what I often like to say about what I enjoy about uh, the DVR is I can watch more TV in less time, which is the perfect combination in my world. It's so. like it's like having more life. <laughs> who would who wouldn't want more life? You know, if, if only other things could go at two x. Correct. Um, you said particularly, particularly faculty meetings. Oh, mm. yeah, indeed. Uh, so now, uh, while we might be helping you break into a new level of of podcast excellence, uh, Doug, you're, you've long been uh, at the highest level of blogger excellence. So well, thank you, you you've been you've had your sentencing law and policy blog for a long time now, right? Going on almost a decade. Wow. Well, I think. Congrats May, on that. Thank you. May 14th, I believe, would be my 10-year blog anniversary, if that's the right way to describe it. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, is, this is not a flash in the pan. You started it, and you've stuck with it. And and actually, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but, um, you know, like David Foster Wallace says, cliches are often cliches because they're true. 
um, uh, sticking, like showing up is a big deal, right? <laughs> and you've like shown up with this thing for a decade. And I'm, I'm thinking also like of Larry Solom. Sure. You know, there are a few people in the legal academy who have stepped into a clear void, you know, where technology will make what we do better. Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. just, you know, and a lot of people have done that and they haven't been able to keep up with it. Dennis you know, Crouch with Pat and Leo, I think that's true in the right. patent area. I mean, he's, he's, yeah. And, and it's sort of like, you know, this is, this is the cop on the beat or the soldier or whatever. This is like this, or, you know, the, the person in the watchtower in the national forest looking out for fires. It's like you're there, <laughs> you get there and you do your job and you do it well and everyone benefits. And and it's just terrific. And well, I, get, yeah. I, I really appreciate that. And I think it's an interesting metaphor, too, because I do think if um, somebody were to tap in, uh, I could imagine tapping out. Although, uh, as would probably be true for the uh, forest ranger, uh, I would keep watching to see if they were <laughs> minding the forest as well as I thought I was doing. And that's my own obsession is I've had periods where I've brought in guest bloggers when I've been on vacation or other things. And I'm just so obsessive. <laughs> and in some sense, enjoy the forum for my voice that I have a very hard time, uh, you know, reducing my uh, temporal footprint, uh, even when I have somebody <laughs> else doing it. And so that's one of the things that has been sort of part of the, the decade learning experience is at least with respect to sentencing, um, I do better with it just being my baby, you know, somewhat in contrast to some of the group blogs uh, that are popular. But, uh, you know, the marijuana blog that I've started recently not only am I enjoying it being a group blog, but uh, I struggled when it only had to be me, and I'm I'm thinking it's starting to find its legs as I have more and more people involved in it. And those are the hardest things to manage. I think you know, with any organization, forget just blogs for now. I mean, it it's one thing to make something successful and good; it's quite another thing to make it self sustaining. Yeah, and yeah. It, you know, it's you you can put a lot of energy into something and, and make it great, but finding the next person who will have as much passion as you to keep it going is a it's a different task and one that's, you know, not as fun as, as, as making it great. Or a co-venture who's going to collaborate you with you at that, at that very high level. I, right. you know, I think co-authoring case books, same phenomenon where, you know, finding that co-author who's, who you really love working with and who it makes the book better because both of you are doing it together and you do all of it together. I mean, I, I feel like I have that with my IP survey case book co-author, but it's a, it's, it's in a sense, it's lightning in a bottle. You can't, you know, you right. can't predict it necessarily, um, but when it works, it's really great. Yeah. Well, uh, and and so that's really good insight, and this is why I'm enjoying this greatly, is I've never thought a lot about, and thinking about casebooks, thinking about um, maybe treatises in a different generation, I don't think uh, law professors are often rewarded for sustainability skills, right? That, um, right, you know, right. yes, certainly... You know, writing a great law review article requires a certain amount of sustainability, but but we don't expect somebody to then, for the next 10 years, follow up and continue to sort of build on it. Rather, uh, sometimes that's seen as a negative. Oh, you know, when's your next idea coming along? You know, right, yeah. get, get fresh and new. And, and um, you know, even in the classroom, there are times at which um, if we're kind of doing the same thing too long, it gets stale rather than uh, be a benefit. And so it's interesting to think about you know, particularly as I've seen a lot of very impressive and, and uh, enjoyable faculty blogs come and go, um, it is because it's a different skill and interest, and sometimes it's rewarded, but sometimes not so much. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, as you say that, about um, uh, some conversations I've had about, about other law schools where, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a real norm for the people there to have had, it, you know, not just one major idea, but like two or three 
you know, right. and that's the goal in a career. And I'm, and I think of, uh, my clerk, uh, my clerkship experience and, and, um, and I was wondering, you know, what, what it would be like if, uh, if Guido Calabresi, after writing Cause of Accidents, had followed it up with more about accidents instead of, <laughs> instead of the cathedral or tragic right, choices right. or one of these other things. It's, you <laughs> yeah. know, there is yeah. a real norm of, of continued innovation, which I guess is what we're, what we're all, you know, in a way it's what we're all about in the academy, right? It's, it's like taking risks, you know, lots of failures, some gems. Uh, it's stuff that the market wouldn't otherwise provide, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's really interesting as I was talking just this morning to, my wife about one of the reasons I've continued doing the blog for a decade is because more so uh, than some other uh, sort of sustained scholarly work, it I think has a balance between sustainability and innovation, right? That, yeah, that, yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, you mentioned the casebook uh, before, to some degree, it's critical not to innovate too much with new editions of a casebook because then all your adopters get grumpy. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, what about my notes and my, you know, and, and, and that again has some value, right? I mean, the, the, one of the reasons, um, you know, casebooks are itself valuable is because you're trying to create stuff that's enduring and, and sort of sift out the, uh, kind of more temporal matters. And to me, the great thing about the blog, space and um you know it's been interesting to me to not see it get that more advanced maybe because the sort of blog 1.0 was was good enough that it facilitates some measure of innovation uh but not too much and again the innovation tends to be substantive uh rather than stylistic right so uh in fact i've resisted uh an effort by paul karen to to change the look of the blog for a variety of reasons because I like the stability and the aesthetic of my main blog, but I've definitely had the content and my kind of focal point of, of different themes of posts evolve over time, substantively, much more so than stylistically. Um, and that's, that again, that sort of uh, combination of continuity and innovation is what continues to bring me back to that particular technological forum yeah it's a really it's a really fun time to be an academic isn't it when all of these you know what the the innovations in 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 my generation have not been uh you know rocket ships really fast airplane i mean there's some of that of course you know i haven't gotten my flying car that's not where <laughs> technology put all of its energy right instead it's communications right and uh, uh the generations before ours um you know uh we talked about this on on the, on the show um a couple of weeks ago but um the generations before ours communicated by uh it was expensive and so you would prepare a fairly lengthy work because you wanted to package up you know, your ideas in a way that would be, you know, amenable to once a year dissemination or maybe twice a year. Uh, and things are bound together in journals and shipped out. I mean, the, the whole journal book model is, uh, you know, it, it seems to me, you know, just kind of thinking about it here, built on the assumption of expensive communication. And, and now we're in this era where communication is very cheap. And one of the questions that you're answering with your blog is, well, how should we talk to each other as right. academics? Right. And, um, Blogs are one way. Hopefully, you know this podcast is another way, and uh, I th it's it's a really cool time because I think no one really knows what's going to, uh, you know, what no one really knows uh, all that is fully possible. Um, 
with cheap communications. Uh, but we're kind of figuring it out, and that's a lot of fun. The greater yeah. variety is good, too, because with a greater variety, more modalities, you have more different people's strengths. Can More different people can play to their own private strengths. So you feel like you're getting the most out of more people. Because they all, we all have different talents. We all have a different mix of, you know, the pluses and the minuses. Yeah. So if you, and, and if you can value all that and let all that thrive because all of it can contribute something really positive, that's pretty, I think that's pretty great. Yeah. Oh, you know, that's a very interesting point, particularly against the backdrop of a little piece that I did as part of a bloggership, you know, our blog scholarship symposium, which was kind of the, the topic du jour when blogs really hit it big and lots of law professors were doing this. And, one of the things I did as part of that was to look back at old Harvard Law Reviews and kind of do a little, not quite, you know, communications history among the legal academy, but at least just sort of reflected on that. And my sense was there was actually a lot more variability in what traditional law reviews were publishing and kind of what their vision of how to let different academics express themselves yeah. then, then ended up emerging uh, not necessarily that we had a homogenization of what law professors were doing necessarily, but but uh, in part because of cheaper communication, but still an emphasis on print communication. Uh, not only did the length of law reviews grow, but you know the number of footnotes and the norm for what's the ideal way for an elite academic to express themselves in the legal academy took on this you know 100 pages and 300 footnote norm. And that, I will say, candidly and happily, does not play to my strength. Yeah. Of course, uh, it's something that uh, there's value in doing. And here's where one of the themes that I developed in this article was that the value of blogs is everybody should try it out, right? And this is, again, yeah. why I'm happy to do a bot podcast, right? Because, you know, you guys might uh, convince me that I ought to be spending every Friday afternoon just <laughs> you know, ram rambling about new technology or new modalities or whatever the case may be, because... It's only by doing different things that you discover not only what your strengths are, but then this is the other part that I find so valuable about a blog and, and is so much less true, I find, at least personally, when I do traditional uh, legal scholarship, as that's now defined, is the immediacy of the feedback from an audience uh, and the diversity of the audience right, right, for right. me is, is very valuable in my own learning process, right? That Definitely. Certainly, Certainly, it's great. You write a long law review piece and somebody responds to it or you, know, you, you get involved in a conversation. But the timeline of that is so slow uh, and it's inevitable to some degree that you have to um, be talking about things that are less time sensitive uh, because of the, the, the just practical realities of a print-based dialogue. And when you do it digitally, and particularly if you do it digitally, uh, in a blog format, not only is something you know, sort of reactive every day, uh, if somebody doesn't react within 24 hours and you're an active blogger, you know, you're on to the next topic. And so, um, you know, that itself is where I get a lot of insight and why I continue to blog is to see what topics my readership and others are engaging with immediately, right? That they're motivated. You know, whether I'm writing these days a lot about marijuana reform, whether I'm writing about, uh, uh, federal sentencing law and policy, which is sort of, you know, my core, uh, from the get go in my own scholarly work and teaching and, and writing, um, you know, different times, different sets of folks will be eager to kind of stir up that conversation. And that itself is 
I think actually part of research, right? That yeah. you in that way discover, okay, you know, I'm here in my ivory tower, you know, is it the practitioners that are really eager to talk an awful lot about that and send me emails as follow-ups? Is it the academics who are eager to talk about that? And, you know, what are they engaged with? Is it senior academics, junior academics? Am I getting invited to do podcasts, uh, you know, based yeah. on this or that? And, and you know, especially because I think the Legal Academy has struggled to have as much impact as I think it should have mm. because we've, we've, we've migrated to fora in which the feedback is either non-existent or very slow um, that I think we, it, it makes it dangerously easy for us to get in our own echo chambers just because that's all we're hearing and yeah. have a basis to react to. And so, so that's really been where, you know, for me, the blog and, and it's why I think I continue to do it over a decade. It's, it's not just, uh, gets me to do writing and, and express myself, but seeing how people react to it, both kind of directly and indirectly, helps me better understand, and, and you know, this is the theme, not just what I want to make sure my research uh, is attentive to, but also especially in the classroom, because our students, I find, are, whether we like it or not, always living in the moment. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, to be tuned into, okay, these are the topics that, you know, when they spend their summers wherever they are or when they first graduate that, you know, I know that there are going to be other people out there, both, you know, in the academy, in the judiciary and, um, you know, in the practicing bar that they're going to be sort of tuned into. Uh, that's extraordinarily valuable. Well, I've got three quick points on this before, super quick points, before we turn to Mary Jane, marijuana <laughs> and, and, and illegal drugs, which is I'm sure why people are tuning in. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, so one thing that what you just said r reminds me of is just how um, almost like quaint and interesting I find it when I look back at very, you know, very old, but older scholarship, early 20th century scholarship, uh, at least in some journals where you'd, you'd see an article uh, and you get to the end of it. And at the end of the article would be the name of the author, like they're signing it, like a letter, including right. the, the place, you know, they put like, you know, whoever in New Haven, Connecticut, right? Yeah, and it would yeah. almost like the, what's being published is, a, you know, a true communication, a true, a true letter. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that, um, some, my, when I'm trying to learn, especially a new area of law or thinking, thinking about exposing students to it, one of my favorite genres is, uh, has been, um, symposia. Uh, the pieces are, are oftentimes very short. They're, uh, more dialogic and usually get to the point and usually will cite the big pieces as well. Yep, yep. So it's a quick way to kind of figure out what the state of the art is. And, um, so I, I've always found those great or dialogues back and forth if it's not a full symposium. And the third thing is, um, we got to do a show on this. You know, our show is called Oral Argument, right, Joe? Is I that, do know is that, that. Is that the, still the name? That is still the name. Okay. I thought it was Cyberloquium. Is that? Yeah. That was never, something else? Okay. Never. Uh, so it's called Oral Argument. And at someday we're going to do a show about Oral Argument. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, we'll talk about, about actual this. Oral Argument? Yeah, because, you because, you know, uh, um, on the one hand, anybody who's ever worked at a law firm and like pre prepared a partner for Oral Argument, it in some sense, you just know it's a tremendous waste of resources. <laughs> right? Because um, uh, we're going to, I don't even, maybe I shouldn't even get into it because it's a longer conversation. But one of the great things about oral argument or the theory behind oral argument, as opposed to just people writing long briefs, is that you kind of get to the nub of things faster, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it's a chance for the judges to talk to each other using the lawyers as tools. There are all kinds of different models of it, right? But um, in, in some sense, legal practice has found different modes of communication in the same way that we in academia have used the symposium, uh, the conference, the uh, uh, the book, the article, and now with additional forms of communication, like 
you know, blogs, podcasts, other things. And I, I'm also interested in how that creeps into practice. But oral argument is kind of the equivalent, in a way, of yeah. of that kind of engagement that you're talking about, maybe on a, on a limited scale. Um, uh, and, and and here's where I would be especially intrigued, and and so not to prescript your your future podcast that I will have some wonderful uh, technology to get me subscribing to <laughs> uh, and and looking out for, but. Um, kind of the history of oral argument, right? I mean, I was actually talking to a legal historian yesterday who, you know, was emphasizing in his work that uh, some famous patent case from years ago, it took, you know, two weeks of oral argument in front of the Supreme Court, right? And now we yeah. think it's a huge deal that, you know, the Obamacare cases, you know, got three hours. And, you know, that relationship, and again, of course, this is this is itself a communication story, um, I think, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it was much more efficient, in fact, uh, you know, to write short briefs uh, and then, you know, all get together and talk it through for two days. Right yeah. now, um, for a variety of reasons, it's much more efficient and effective to you know write long briefs and get together and talk it through for half an hour. And, and so, you know, the, the, the form and function component of that, I think, is really, really interesting. And that's going to be the question, isn't it? Is it what, what do we mean? I think efficient is easier to describe. Um, uh, although efficiency, well, effectiveness is a difficult one though, right? Cause right. this is our central problem in law that we keep coming back to in the podcast. Actually, it's like, you know, we, we're not quite sure what we're doing, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> well, 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 thank God because then computers might, uh, you know, make us, uh, if not irrelevant, at least, uh, second best. That's option. true. I hadn't thought about that. Like we have a built in incentive not to create a spec. In the law, if we created a spec, someone could code to it, and yeah, we'd be yeah, out of it. We don't we, want the AI to do this, so yeah, we need to keep it uh, un AI able. Maybe okay. that's right. So I w- so let's talk. Can marijuana, we talk? Can we talk marijuana. drugs now? Well, let me, let me hold on. Can we just talk drugs and generally for a second? Oh, sure, sure. Um, um, because I've got to admit, Doug, I wasn't uh, I wasn't able to look at some of your latest writings on marijuana before the show, so this is going to be kind of new to me. No worries. Um, um, but I did teach on uh, Thursday, um, just yesterday. Uh, I teach a first year uh, legislation and regulation class. Uh, awesome. And um, I, uh, as a statutory interpretation case, which mm-hmm. is really meant to like bring home the different theoretical approaches that you can take towards uh, uh, the way that legislatures and courts should talk to one another, right. is uh, the Easterbrook Posner dialogue in United States versus Marshall about LSD, yeah. Um, yeah. LSD amount, uh, weights. It's a great uh, case. Fantastic case. It is a great case. And, uh, and, the, and the U.S. Supreme Court case that affirmed Easterbrook's opinion is, of course, not nearly as interesting. Of course. Um because Posner's opinion, Easterbrook is also, I mean, it's just a fascinating uh, opinion. And it, I've, so just for the listeners, um, this is a case where the, uh, um, interpreting a, a statute which applies mandatory minimum sentences, uh, for certain amounts of, uh, of drugs that you have in possession. And the way that it does that is, is, is the way that it determines these thresholds is, is by weight. Uh, which makes it maybe more sense for the weight of like cocaine or heroin or some other drug like that. And the way that it defines it is it's, um, you know, it's any, uh, it's a, I don't remember the exact weights, but it's a, a particular weight of a substance or mixture containing a detectable amount of, and then the name of the controlled substance. And, uh, this works kind of well for cocaine and heroin, which are very often cut with some other substance. And what Congress, I, I guess, is trying to capture is that what's important is kind of the amount of drug, the amount of highs, <laughs> the amount of hits that the, is, are being put out onto the market. Uh, at least that's a rational 
uh, perspective. Where could, weight is a good proxy for weight that. is a good proxy for the number of doses. Uh, but with LSD, um, the weight of the LSD, paper. yeah, exactly. The weight of LSD relative to the carrier medium medium on on which it is distributed negligible. is negligible, and so uh, the weight of confiscated LSD stuff is entirely down to the particular carrier medium that you choose, which is not a good proxy for dose. And so, you know, I learned a lot about um, LSD from Judge Posner uh, in, in the opinion. Um, and it looks like that's not been updated at all. And, and as he says in that opinion, and we could go into more detail, but I do want to talk about marijuana, um, you know, uh, choosing a sentence or sentencing, uh, uh, choosing a, a, a prison sentence based on the weight of the carrier medium makes about as much sense as, as choosing a sentence based on the weight of the defendant. <laughs> right, it just it's it's completely uh, irrational. It looks like that's not been changed at all. Uh, I think that's right, and I think that's itself a story of LSD not being a popular drug, or that the you know the flaws and mm. difficulties that come with it. In fact, you know that is itself another interesting story. Or, or put differently, one of let me put, provide two contexts here. Okay. One is uh, marijuana, in particular, drug reform in general. I think is an extraordinarily valuable topic to engage law students with, not only because it's, it's very, very salient to them, but it's also very, very real in across two valuable dimensions, right? One is that uh, they probably themselves have been involved in illegal activity related to drugs, whether it's just, you know, drinking a beer before they were 21 or, you know, getting access to marijuana or, you know, maybe harder drugs. But two, especially, they probably know people, good and bad, right, people they like and people they don't like, uh, for which drugs is very much a real problem. And right. this one of the many reasons um, I always use a variety of drug cases and, and really work hard to integrate kind of drug discussions in all my criminal law teachings, and it's easy in some settings but harder in others, is because it will feel real to students in a way that an awful lot of other discussions, even though it's conceptually very real to them, right? It, you know, you talk about homicide, you talk about sexual offenses, and in fact, you know, sadly, sometimes they're a lot more real than we even want to uh, know about, but uh, it, it, it just necessarily isn't as personal as I find it valuable to ensure there's a conversation that is, right? Yeah, and you know, I, and the cases that I used before this one are the uh, the cases about uh, using a gun in the commission of a drug trafficking crime, the right. Smith, Smith and Watson cases, right. which involve uh, alternatively trading guns for drugs or trading right. drugs for right. guns. Right. And and you, that, what, you just put your finger on it because those cases, while very interesting for, um, uh, you know, thinking about statutory interpretation methodologies, um, it's like... As I think most of my law students think that, well, that's a law that's going to be mainly for other people. Right, you know, right. I just don't know a lot of people. Maybe some of them, I'm sure some of them do, you know, some small right. percentage. But most right. of us don't know people who are in kind of the gun running or drug running business. But yep. the law that applies to possession of small amounts of marijuana or underage drinking or even uh, LSD, you know, that's a law that applies to, if not my you know, immediate community, the peripheries of communities in which I am a member of which I'm a member. And, yep. and maybe that's, you know, finding cases which are personal where the law is one which both we engineer, and that's a good perspective for law students, but, but the law we're engineering is what governs us, where I'm a member of the us is a critical perspective. And it's I th probably often lost in criminal law. Yeah. And, and I'll go take it one step further too, which is the other thing that, that beyond the 
making it feel personal challenge that I often have is helping folks who come in, as most do, with either a pro-prosecution or a pro-defense perspective be extraordinarily respectful of how somebody could have the other side perspective. Yeah, and I find, right. I find, again, drug cases in general, marijuana in particular, are good ones for that because, you know, my sense, and, and this actually gets to the heart of what I learned from teaching a marijuana seminar, um, was that in some sense, whatever the drug is, there is an inherent comfort level, not necessarily approval, but at least comfort level with what I would sort of call non-abusive use. Right, right. And, yeah. And, and I emphasize this point because we can extend it beyond drugs, right? We can extend it to guns, right? I don't think anybody who's for gun control is really heartbroken about the idea that sometimes you get to go to Dave and Buster's and play with a gun there, right? Now, it's not a real gun, obviously, but nobody says, oh, well, that's horrible that, you know, you gun play, <laughs> right? It's, right? It's always, you know, I'm worried about use because it can lead to abuse. Uh, right. And... And again, that's where, you know, and I actually emphasize a lot with students, and it's my own perspective to some extent, you know, cars are perhaps the best example here where, you know, when used well, of course, we want everybody not only using it, you know, maybe save for the environmentalists, but, you know, we certainly don't want to imagine a world that would highly dissuade use of automobiles. That would be a very inefficient world for a variety of reasons. But we also recognize that uh, we need to regulate and sometimes criminalize certain activities with the car because abusive uses of that object or substance can be very, very harmful for society. Yeah, and from my perspective, abusive uses is like, what you're really saying is that drugs, guns, and and cars are all instrumentalities uh, to do different things, and they can be instrumentalities to produce maybe even good things, uh, or at least entertaining things. Uh, but what we're really worried about is like uh, in the case of cars um crashes and deaths uh yep. in the case of drugs it would be maybe downward spirals social isolation um uh you know taking someone to a point where they can't control their own usage and therefore suffer and would never have chosen to be in that spot if they were in their right mind to begin with and with guns you know i think it's fairly obvious for you know what abusive uses right are. although here's where here's where again the marijuana course drug debates in general, and then actually connecting it to gun discussions as well, uh, is so interesting because the insight I got from the marijuana class is that fundamentally, whether folks are tapped into this or not, what often can shape or at least significantly influence one's view on a variety of issues goes back to the very core question of, do you inherently think use is, if not, if not definitionally abuse, is something that society ought not be happy about, right? And so I think if you look at, let's take gun control to focus it there first, right? You know, there are obviously some people, and they tend to be Second Amendment fans, who think not only that gun use is not a bad thing, but they think that's kind of fundamental to their construction of themselves within American society and even the construction of America, right? right. Yeah. Whereas there are other people, and, you know, typically people in cities who you know, I can't see any good value to have any use of a gun. It's not good to go out hunting. It's not good to, you know, play around with guns and have fun with them. Any use to me, even if it's not per se abusive, I don't value the use qua use, right? So, yeah. and, and, I, and, and I guess part of that, and this is where this gets highly uh, socialized and becomes, you know, kind of the classic wedge issues, right? And I really don't like the people who like to use it. Right. So that it's not just 
uh, I don't think the use is healthy or valuable or useful to me. It's uh, something that worries me about people who enjoy the use. And right. here's again where I think the parallel, although usually uh, running politically the other way to marijuana, is profound. Because yeah. I think, you know, there are some people who would say, well, you know, I'm really worried about abuse, but you know what? I don't think use is very valuable as well. And on top of that, I really am troubled by the people. That's really but interesting. I mean, that's like saying that um, I don't just have a preference that there be no guns around me, but I also have a preference for my preference. You know, it's like I, have yes. a, I, I prefer that people share my preference. I think my preference is constitutive of my personhood in a way, right? Like that I am a gun-hating person or a gun-loving person right. or that I am someone who – it, you know, who, who's perfectly comfortable with uh, lots of people getting high all the time, uh, or right. I'm someone who, you know, thinks that that is like against a certain conception of the social order that I have. We were talking right. about this even in the case of LSD, which is uh, perceived by some to be a very dangerous drug, um, and by others as a as one of the safest drugs, right. you know, actually, right. I mean, you know, and, and, and Posner puts in his opinion, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's just not a very dangerous drug objectively physiologically right. um and we're trying to figure out like you know in that case if you know we'll, i'm sure we're going to get into uh reform of, of marijuana laws and the like but um you know one of the options in that marshall case was well maybe the court could strike down the entire um criminal uh sanction um right. for uh lsd because it's irrational and therefore unconstitutional um and 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 so one thing you might think from that is well What's the best way for the courts and, and the legislature to have a dialogue about this question to 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 basically for the legislature to kind of think through what people's preferences are about LSD right. and to have a right. kind of rational response and and actually striking them down would probably be the best way because uh, if they're struck down there's no doubt that Congress would <laughs> would try to reinstitute them and um, uh, in some way and maybe a more rational way whereas uh, by upholding them you know the chance that they'll ever get fixed is very low so it's a, there's a little bit of a story about a, asymmetrical costs of uh of uh, legislation there but uh to the point here though you know we were trying to think through well why is it so unlikely um that congress would get involved uh if um if if these uh sentences uh, the sentencing regime is left in place and why is it so likely that they would get involved if they were struck down despite the fact that lsd is physiologically at least uh pretty safe and you know one of my thoughts was and this is totally uninformed in a way is that Parents are very, very scared of psychotropic drugs, right? Yeah. There's a sense that kids who use those drugs or young people who use that drugs are kind of going away. Like it's it, it it plays on all of our fears of parents about losing control of our children. Right. Maybe even right. a way that like a drug that you know if if your parents like in the '60s uh, smoked marijuana, they you know they're not exactly thrilled about the idea of of your smoking marijuana, but like they can live with it. Right. Whereas right. LSD might take you to a completely different place. Like not, not just well, a, Yeah, go ahead. And, and you bring that up because here's an, here's another one of the huge insights I drew away from teaching this marijuana course. And again, this is yet another variation of what I was saying before is until you try something, you don't, you know, you don't learn as much as you think you learn. I thought I really had a keen understanding of kind of what's really operative, both kind of socially and legally in, in these reform movements. And yet as, I spent a semester thinking about it, working with students about it, you know, creating a new blog and talking about it. You know, there were so many of these kinds of insights. The first one being this, that one's fundamental instinct about whether letting people use something is an inherent good because we have kind of a libertarian good, good for them to be free or no, 
it's bad because, you know, we have maybe a more moralistic vision that there's just certain behaviors or beliefs that are just bad, you know, uh, whether people are free to do it or not, it, it's got an inherent wrongness to it. And so that was sort of issue one and how important that was to unpack for people to understand their perception of a variety of different arguments that surround marijuana reform. But the other one that, that you just sort of tapped me into and reminded me of is kind of variations on paternalism, which again is, I guess, maybe the other side of the do we like a libertarian view of America and American law and policy, or do we actually like a much more paternalistic, you know, state as healthy parent? Right. And structuring its relationship to its citizenry as the well-meaning parent, because I very much do think, and again, this is really what's um, uh, going to drive a variety of different, both short and long-term, I think, uh, moves in marijuana reform in particular, but drug reform more broadly, you often see arguments like, well, you know, and, and this comes up on my blog a lot from some people who are against reform. Well, if you think it's so good to have this, you know, are you telling your kids they should smoke pot? And the answer is, well, they're kids, right? And so, you know, but it's different. We, we don't run our laws based on, is this something we would want our kids doing? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Although sometimes we do. Right. And sometimes, again, it's that kind of relationship between, hey, letting adults do this necessarily is going to give formally and informally a sense to kids that it's okay to do this. Right. Well, well, yeah, I was going to break in just to say that um, my paternalism is an interesting term here because my sense of like the just the crazy laws in the 80s and, you know, the. You know, the crazy react, you know, minimum sentences and, and, uh, what I would perceive as a severe kind of overreaction and irrational reaction to drugs is driven by, you know, actual paternalism. These are like parents who want to protect their kids and are basically enlisting the state yep. in that service, right? Because there've been time, you know, at that time when these like weekly news magazines were, we're still actually publishing <laughs> and, and big deals. You know, every, you know, sometimes occasionally it would be like, here's the latest, uh, you know, great Satan in the Middle East that we have to fight against. That There would be right. that cover. And then the other covers were like pictures of drug dealers and, you yeah. know, you're, you're going to lose your kids. And, yeah. uh, and here's the, the biggest new drug you have to worry about. And it's not at all yeah. like you, and when you were in college, if they take this one time, they're addicted and they're going to go on rampages or be killed or something. So, well, well, my favorite variation on that theme is why I think particularly in, uh, you know, kind of bedroom community type environments where we've seen sometimes even more liberal communities be comfortable with public schools and others having uh, significant zero tolerance drug testing approaches. And that's, you know, ultimately been approved by the Supreme Court under the Fourth Amendment. It's driven by parents who want somebody to be the heavy, but they don't want to be it, right? And so, right. They have, mm. you know, a zero tolerance policy forced upon the kids at school where the parents can say, yeah, that's a little much, but, you know, if you, you want to be on the sports team, you got to do that. Yeah. You know, it's an easy way for them, like you're sort of saying, it's not just I want the state to help me be a parent. It's there are parts of parenting that's much less fun. Yeah. You know, I don't want to drug test my own kids, and I particularly don't want to even have to spend mental time and energy worrying about are my kids on drugs, but I like the idea that somebody else is spending the time, money, and energy, you know, looping me in as it were and yeah, so yeah. you know i think this is again where you know particularly as we see 
parents being leveraged in a variety of ways. And there, you know, there are moms groups of various sorts on both sides of the equation. And especially when it gets to medical marijuana, I think we're, we're particularly seeing in the last few months an incredible move towards openness to mar- medical marijuana based on the paternalism of uh, those with children who are suffering from these severe epilepsy conditions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who are saying quite vocally and quite um, uh, prominently, look, you know, this is not about you know, stoners and dopers. This is really about something that I've discovered has made, you know, my children functional. And how can you legislators possibly keep me as parents from having access to something that as a responsible parent, I believe my kids should have access to. And, and, you know, that's what's been particularly interesting. This is only in the last few months. We've seen very red states in the deep South be very open to medical marijuana reform that's based around only uh, providing the, the kind of distinctive form uh, of medical marijuana that seems to help these epilepsy syndromes. And that's very different. And, and actually, there's already an emerging debate among the marijuana reform community. Is it good that more states are coming online but they're coming online only with the, we want the special non-high but helpful for the epilepsy marijuana, as opposed to some other states which are more open to, you know, every kind of marijuana for every kind of condition is at least a possibility as part of our medical marijuana regime. But is this just like the typical lag that we see where, you know, uh, progressive things happen in California or um, and then gradually spread in similar ways throughout the rest of the country. Um, and, and maybe some things happen which shouldn't. I mean, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying this is, right. it seems to be a typical pattern, whether it's, uh, although you know, it hasn't, didn't exactly happen this way, but uh, so right, this right, is right. a bit of a stereotype. But like, you know, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's acceptance of, uh, of, of uh, more, you know, greater racial acceptance, I don't know. You yeah. can think of a whole bunch of things where, um, you know, a trend starts, um in, in some place like California. And eventually, you know, it's so obvious that this is going to be embraced by everyone, especially when there's kind of a, a break between young and old as to preferences for this thing. Sure. Uh, you right. know, eventually, well, demographics are going to control, and this is going to spread even into, say, the Deep South. It just takes longer. And is this not the same kind of thing? Because after all, my under my memory of this, and I could be wrong, is that um, even in California, this got started, uh, uh, the, the, the real acceptance of marijuana uh, began based on empathy towards medical need. Yes, and, and that's certainly true, although here's where, again, uh, you can tell a very big picture story, which is, yes, California got started with this in 96, but, um, you know, there wasn't really an awful lot of traction uh, on any frontiers until really 08, 09, when Obama gets elected and is much more open to the feds allowing states to go their own way on medical approaches, right? And then that, that had a bunch of different echo effects. Uh, and so you might say, yes, California pioneered this to some extent, uh, but actually it didn't move forward very much until we had a more progressive national environment uh, that was open to the idea. You also could get very much into the weeds and say, no, actually the reason California was the frontier here, and it, it's, it's a complicated story, but an interesting one, is because the medical needs changed, particularly in California, and I'm thinking uh, both the combination of, of the AIDS epidemic uh, and the way in which uh, different visions of uh, alternative medicines and a disaffinity for the belief that we could always trust the FDA and the federal government to make 
reasonably healthy choices. Uh, I think that played a role too, and it continues to play a role here, right? That, that, oh, that's really um, interesting. So is, is it the case that there's a, I mean, is there some way to tie together an increasing preference for alternative medicine, which, you know, some people would criticize heavily as anti-science and maybe even, you know, there's a part of that movement which overlaps with the anti-vaccination movement. Right. But is there some kind of direct tie or some way to think about the tie between that uh, movement for alternative medicine and the rise of uh, medical marijuana? What I certainly think, and again, this is why I taught the course, and this is why I'm grateful to do this podcast, and why I'm especially excited that over the last you know six months to a year, I'm getting invited to more and more different fora to talk about these issues. Is and my students make fun of me because I use this phrase too much. There's so much there, there, right? So you know, when we think about marijuana law policy and reform, maybe broader drug policy and reform, I think part of it definitely is. Uh, kind of a relationship between medicine, kind of um, uh, regulation of the medical industry, right, and different perceptions, both on the left and the right, of the legitimacy or illegitimacy of both the government and the marketplace <laughs> be, being uh, go-betweens, right? And so, and I think this is the most interesting thing that not only relates to marijuana, but is is part of a a broader set of conversations about where drug reform is going, uh, both in the criminal justice arena and in a public health arena, is more and more people are recognizing that we have a new surge in heroin addiction, and 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 not only is that a very very dangerous drugs, but there are you know literally uh, dead bodies all around, including Philip Seymour Hoffman, who are create a very uh, profound salience to the, the the problems that are being seen from increased heroin use and abuse, obviously. But that many, many folks are starting to say it is because of increased use of prescription drugs, right? Uh, painkillers, opiates that are often leading to uh, an acclimation with the kind of highs and experiences that heroin use is a part of. And, you know, again, whether that leads to, hey, we really shouldn't trust big pharma or we really shouldn't trust traditional medicine or we really shouldn't trust the government to keep us safe in these respects remains to be seen. But I do think, you know, it, it's, um, it, it's among the sort of broader social forces that are, I'm finding fascinating to watch. And is, is that, again, is that the basic distinction that, I mean, is that the, uh, so is it the, uh, the basic shift in, I don't know if you want to get normative with it or not and say whether it's a good one, but is the basic shift away from um, drugs prescribed by doctors, good drugs that you buy on the street, bad, or equivalently, drugs you take to secure to to deal with some condition, good drugs you take to um, uh, to change your uh, mood for recreational reasons, bad. Toward instead uh, a more nuanced view, which says maybe drugs you take for whatever reason that enhance your autonomy or please you, good drugs you take which have substances like um, opiates in them, which will ultimately take away from your autonomy, bad. Is that I don't know. It, it is, although here's again where, you know, uh, to, to take it even further, one of the joys I had, and, and I used uh, a lovely little book uh, recently out by academic, Carolina Academic Press, by uh, authored by a young professor, Alex Creat, who's out at uh, Thomas Jefferson, called Controlled Substances, and it's really the first book just about drug law, drug policy, and would support a course talking about all these issues very effectively, and I only used pieces of it. Uh, to, to sustain the marijuana course. And actually, Alex and I have talked about maybe trying to put a reader together 
that's more focused on supporting seminars and other coursework on marijuana reform. Yeah, that'd but, be great. That'd be, be great. Yeah. Good, good, good. And, 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 uh, uh, in fact, I'm overdue to get back to him to talk about this. But, but the reason I've been, I'm thinking about it and promoting Alex's work here in his book is the first chapter starts with a wonderful, maybe seemingly too academic, but very, very valuable first question is what is a drug? Right. So we, we yeah. use that term a lot. And certainly it is comfortable in a variety of ways. But, you know, it's actually a highly uh, kind of underdefined concept. Right. And in particular, if we think about uh, my favorite would be a sugar pill. Right. Yeah. So we certainly don't think of sugar as a drug. And yet, indisputably, we take a lot of things that are obviously our drugs that has a much different and much less salient effect on our mood personality and, and physical health than, yeah. you know, refined sugar does. Uh, and again, it's one of those sort of funny things where I, I bring up the sugar pill in part because it's often used as a placebo, right? Because it's a way of which you can give people the experience of they're taking a drug and yet then test what, you know, every drug you're actually trying to do medical research on. Uh, and again, you know, whether it's a focus on sugar, another great one is caffeine. I think most of us would say caffeine is a drug as we sort of think of drugs, but we certainly don't think of Starbucks as a drug dealer, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, again, that itself was one of sort of the joys of kind of figuring this out. And so when you ask a wonderful question like, is our social conception of good drugs versus bad drugs or good ways to get drugs versus bad ways to get drugs um, breaking down, I would actually say, and, and again, this is, this is maybe another piece of, you know, a broader set of, you know, Foucault points rather than law professor points uh, is my sense more fundamentally is drugs are much more fundamental to every adult's life right now. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, the Bush administration expanding the prescription drug program because it's a given that, of course, all of our parents need access to lots of drugs in order to stay alive a lot longer. Um, and better. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, and Or it's, you know, we're all very, very used to something that I presume, you know, wasn't the norm fit just 50 years ago, which is I've got a headache. I take a drug and it's foolish not to imagine taking a drug to do that. Oh, and my kid doesn't feel well. Let me get a drug. Right. Oh, and I really don't feel well because of this or that or these or those. Let me call my doctor. And in a perfect world, right. I mean, again, this is sort of, the, you know, where it goes in the perfect world. I won't have to go actually see the doctor. I can just describe my symptoms and he can write a script and I can go get that drug, which will make me feel better. Or, right? or, so or my nine year old boy uh, um, goes to school and the teachers are telling me is having trouble sitting still. Who would have right. thought a nine-year-old boy would have trouble sitting still at school <laughs> and, and, and doesn't seem to be, you know, the, his backpack is full of like loose papers and it doesn't seem very organized. Surely there's something which can turn this nine-year-old boy into the ideal student. And it turns out that there is. And um, uh, so there's that kind of, uh, there's so, an acceptance of that, but I don't, uh, go ahead, Joe. Let yeah. me, yeah, I want to jump in with a, a slightly kind of like a Rolling Stone slash catcher in the rye uh, angle on oh boy on the, great <laughs> just that just that um and it and it may be it, in a way doug it, it kind of connects to one of your posts recently about um uh, and i can't remember whether this was on profs or whether it was on uh marijuana a law and policy blog it might have been on both where marijuana law um and and all the interesting questions it, it may very much be a topic for the young lawyer 
especially. Um, but the, 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 the sort of rolling stone catcher in the rye point is that I think it surely, um, younger folk can generally see the total like the very thick and uh, and obnoxious layer of bs on top of all of this good drug bad drug stuff yeah like yeah. see through the fact that you know wait a minute you, you you're because the pill came from this source uh it's supposed to be bad or good or that doesn't make a lot of sense to me what what would make sense to me is why are people taking it how do you feel when you take it uh and a similar conversation of course goes on about food Right. Uh, and different, uh, whether it's vegetarianism or whether it's the use of, uh, uh, you know, corn syrup in various foods or beverages. I mean, all these things, uh, issues where it seems to me, uh, I think people who haven't been acculturated to, uh, to simply use a bunch of concepts that are highly contestable. Right. And at some right. level, deeply silly. Distinctions that are just on their face sort of ridiculous when someone makes you stop and look at them again in a way that you haven't looked at them for 20 years. Right. right. Um, but they, they haven't, been, they're not 40 yet. So they, they, they haven't had 20 years of ignoring the fact right in front of your face, which right. is, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of silliness going on here. Let's just cut through this yep. and try to figure out a more sensible way to approach it. You know, Christian's yep. suggestion about maybe autonomy is what you should care about. Someone else's concern might be, look, it's it, fitness for use is what you should care about. You know, yep. does it, does it actually do what you want it to do or is it garbage? Yep. Um, yep. Maybe that's your angle on it, but whatever it is, the, the, the notion that, um, well, uh, this one over here, uh, the FDA, uh, and all the suits say is okay. This one over here, um, you know, my, my brother's friend's cousin, Willie says it's okay. Um, <laughs> that, that, that ought to be the basis for some far reaching social policy distinction just sounds ridiculous. What's good enough right. for Willie is good enough for me. Well, <laughs> right. Wait. Am I losing you guys? No, no, no we're, we got okay. you. Uh, I've got uh, my Skype shows a little red thing, but I'm assuming you're still taping on your end, and yeah. I'm still hearing you just fine. So yeah. we're all good. You sound um, great. You sound great on this end. Yeah. Terrific. Good. Um, so uh, you know, I think that's a profoundly valuable point. It's certainly where we're seeing a variety of generational differences, uh, and I always find very interesting that we're still seeing the people in their 60s and 70s who are you know consistently the most anti-traditional drug reform, and yet. You know, we're now to a generation where those are all the baby boomers who presumably had more drug experience, you know, uh, at their age, you know, than any younger generations have ever had. Right. And and so, you know, it's not just a question of kind of acculturation and perspective. It may also be uh, different, both conscious and subconscious uh, views about the legitimacy and important of re respecting the legitimacy of authority. Right. So that to some degree. You know, I wonder if young people who, for good or for bad, you know, necessarily take a, if my parents tell me to do it, it must be bad, right? You know, and so it's not just, um, I don't trust the FDA and I don't trust the government because I'm a libertarian. It's, um, you know, by definition, they're trying to um, uh, influence me in ways that maybe I want to be influenced or maybe I'm not, but I want to sort of explore on my own and discover for myself, right? And, you know, again, here's where we could, especially in a, new tech forum, you know, uh, think about is the same true as my kids constantly tell me how uncool Facebook is, right? And so, um, you know, that, that again, is it the cool factor? Is it the 
and here's, I guess, another part of it that it gets back to drugs in general, but I think marijuana in particular, I think young people are especially comfortable kind of deconstructing the idea that uh, drugs which make you feel good and make you have fun at a party are different in kind than drugs which make you feel good so you're able to go to work, right? And right. so, you know, I think that's the, you know, I think all of us would say as adults and as productive adults, there's, of course, if you have a headache or your leg hurts or whatever the case may be and you think you're going to have to stay home in bed, uh, that you should take a drug if that's going to allow you to get up and be productive, right? Well, especially young people, not only who don't know what being productive means sometimes, but who not unreasonably view in a social sense what's productive is going to a party and meeting people and, you know, <laughs> sort of getting my life lubricated in all the ways that I see the adults use alcohol. Right. It's just that at my parties, we use other things, right? That's, that's, that's again, part of where, you know, not to get too uh, normative philosophical, it's, it's, you know, at some fundamental level about different generations constructing different visions of, you know, leading the good life. Uh, right. And, and that's, again, where, you know, you were mentioning LSD earlier, right? You know, people like to remember Timothy Leary saying, you know, for the artists of the world, for those who really are committed to exploring the mind and human possibility, you know, drug use has a long history of being essential to that, right? Not, yeah. a, not an impediment. And again, that's where I think, um, you know, I'm enjoying how um, sociological rather than legal this discussion has has been, but that's itself what a course like this or, the, you know, an emphasis on sort of seeing where marijuana reform in particular, but, but, but you know, perceptions on uh, the criminalization of drug use in general, you know, you get to those issues real quickly and students get to those issues real quickly. And in particular, I guess this is the other part that to advocate uh, folks teaching a course like this, especially once Alex and I put a reader together so that you all buy uh, in whatever form we put the reader together, um, that uh, I often find it hard to get students to be this philosophical on other more traditional doctrinal topics. Yeah, yeah right, right in part because there's lots of doctrine in the way, but also in part because to some extent a lot of the doctrine exists because the philosophical questions have been, if not resolved, at least gotten to a point where we as academics are comfortable probing it, but the students are constantly asking, well, why is it important that you, you know, essentially we understand the underlying philosophy of it, just tell us the doctrine so we can go be lawyers. You know, here I think... I know that we discussed this and students were so engaged in discussing it because they know they're watching in real time how different philosophical conceptions of these issues will end up impacting the doctrine. So they know I've got to have a handle on this philosophy and at least, you know, see different ways in which that might influence, you know, how the federal government will respond to what Colorado and Washington are trying or how different researchers will um, uh, structure their research questions in the wake of what's going on there, uh, that's going to be critical for me to be in a good position to even know the doctrine going forward because the doctrine isn't there yet. And so I think that's why, you know, I've, I've had a history, not just in this context, but, you know, I do it. I taught a course about Heller right when that came down. I find it's so much easier and students both appreciate it and enjoy more the philosophical discussions when there's no doctrine established yet to get in the way and to distract them from thinking that this is what legal well, study needs to be about. Yeah, well, let me try to let me let me try to lens here um, uh, for you know how we in the law might think of this kind of um, how the sociology connects with the law. 
Before you do that, I just want to interject to say one yeah. quick thing, which is that in the IP area, which is the area I've spent a lot of time in, um, the, it, it's not merely the absence of law. I think it's the, distru- the disruption of law. So it, it could be that there are plenty of things in place, but they don't just, they just don't seem, uh, applicable anymore. So it, copyright is the right. part of IP law that, that feels this way and, and that students get very excited about very quickly. Uh, they know it. They know it affects them because it's music they want to listen to. It's software they want to use. Right. They hear about the copyright rules and they realize, oh my gosh, I'm generating copies of things all the time. I'm generating copyrighted content myself all the time. Every email is copyrightable based on what that professor just said. That sounds crazy. Um, <laughs> so copyright gets them excited in the same way. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna pick up on that because what you're saying is that they are. Uh, they see the law, the, 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 they see the sharp end of the law, the sanctions and the, uh, and the doctrine, and they are motivated to reexamine the law's philosophical foundations. And so the, the way I see this is, you know, there's a, when it comes to drugs, there are a whole bunch of sociological, psychological, and philosophical issues, some of which we've been talking about, right? And those are increasingly contested these days. Um, yeah, we're in a transition period. We're in a transition period. And then, there are the levers of the law, the ordinary levers that the law can use, imprisonment, fines, incentives of various kinds, different things that you can do to try to motivate people to engage in behaviors, refrain from behaviors, help others, not help others, etc. And what's interesting is the bridge between those, right? Because that's also contested. So what is the appropriate way for our philosophical, maybe our pluralistic philosophical and sociological conceptions of drug use? Like, what is the appropriate way to realize those in the various legal levers, right? And so, you know, autonomy might be a bridge, right? Uh, There may be other bridges, you know. In other words, what the law should do is to help people carry forth their own conceptions, their own philosophical conceptions. Or maybe what you want to think about is, you know, when do people need help? in um, choices that they make about drug use, right? And, and to the extent everyone is authoring their own lives in a community of others also, so there's kind of some joint production of, or joint authorship of lives, but uh, people are primarily responsible for their own. When do they need help making choices with respect to these kinds of substances? And when are these substances, you know, when is it important to let them decide on their own? And so, you, you know, you know, might make a, a distinction between, you know, as I suggested maybe before that, um, because because the bridge involves deciding what you know whether things are good or bad or whether think people need help or don't need help and then there's a further question about what levers you're going to use right so i might decide right that um uh that for drugs like um uh, i don't know lsd or marijuana or other drugs which don't seem to be physiologically addictive uh, in the same way as as caffeine or heroin or or nicotine um, that I'm primarily worried about like psychological damage or physiological damage. And I just want to m- continue to engage in studies so we can get people the right information about that and maybe m- make some regulations or do some things that will either help parents encourage their kids to make good choices, like maybe not smoking marijuana when the brain is still developing at the age of 14, 15, 16, delaying that, you know, in the same way that we try to help parents uh, in their efforts to encourage kids to delay sexual debut and other kind of important uh, um, uh, decisions which are within their grasp at that age, but which have important effects. Um, and I might decide, right, that a lot of people need a lot of help when it comes to opiates, right? And this includes not just street heroin, but, um, you know, um, Percocet and all these other opiate derived uh, drugs or, uh, and, and, 
if that's the, but just because I decide that doesn't mean that I want to use prison time <laughs> or as the lever to help people right. with those decisions, right? Um, so but, it seems to me everything is up for grabs now. So, you know, I might have a preference to uh, decriminalize all drugs, you know, and this is what Portugal has gone some way towards this. If I, you know, I don't know much, nearly as much about it as Doug does. And so I'm sure you can help me out with this, Doug. But uh, as I understand it, as far as possession, Portugal has basically decriminalized everything, although not possessions with intent to distribute of certain kinds of drugs. And so I don't know all the details of it. Um, and, and, and it's really tried to emphasize uh, treatment and the kind of the disease paradigm for s- certain kinds of drug addictions. Um, I, Doug, how would you think about this? What, how, how would you, you know, I, obviously we've talked a lot about the sociological perspectives on, on drug use, maybe a little bit on psychological and philosophical, but um, what is the appropriate bridge between those kinds of discussions and the limited set of levers that the law usually provides us with? And, you know, how would you even think about this? Well, to me, and this is again where, you know, I get drawn into this and get so excited is I'm not sure maybe in this realm in particular, but I would ultimately say in the sort of broader realms as well, that the law is quite that limited, right? So, and maybe this is particularly where, um, from a criminal justice perspective, uh, you know, I, I often say, look, <laughs> you know, the law can be uh, developed and operationalized that we end people's lives if they do things we don't like, right? And so now we've, in America, limited that only to, you know, uh, intentional homicides, but other nations take other approaches to what are death penalty offenses. And, you know, to me, I, we talk about it as the ultimate punishment, but to me, when you say, you know, there are limited levers uh, the law can use, well, no, actually, if the law were to conclude that, you know, marijuana use was as evil and horrible as intentional murder, you know, we could use the death penalty, right? And, and here's, you mentioned Portugal, because what's so interesting and what I've found so valuable in this context is I'm very bad at bringing comparative perspectives into my classes. And that's partially because when it comes to um, or international comparative perspective, let me be clear, because part of what I end up doing yeah. in a lot of my traditional criminal doctrinal classes is I'm bringing state by state comparative perspectives and state federal comparative perspectives. So I give students the, the sort of comparative zipgeist, which I think is very, very valuable but I then struggle, and to some extent, I think it's 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 problematic uh, to try to bring in an international perspective because there's so many other cultural and social differences there. Um, but uh, not so much when it comes to, to sort of drug use and abuse and the relationship between you know the laws, levers, and maybe even more fundamentally the way a society decides to conceive of itself and structure itself. So here's my favorite, for example, that. You know, you, you have a sense of Portugal, but my guess is you won't have the right answer to this. And I'm not even 100% sure if this is accurate, but I have enough reason to believe it is that um, I'll, I'll enjoy asking two very, very smart people this question and be fairly confident they won't know the answer. Although maybe, <laughs> may, maybe you'll correct me. Uh, what nation in the world do you think has the most liberal approach to marijuana uh, availability and use? Mm. Well, with that intro, I can only say North Korea. Correct. <laughs> yes, good. that's actually yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it is right. Yeah. Oh, right. I was trying yeah. to be humorous. I know. That's <laughs> the point. All right. Well, let me go the other way. What nation in this country, in the world probably has the most? Um, well, it certainly statistically has the lowest drug use amount, but also seems to have you know maybe even uh, well. Uh, 
I can structure this a bunch of different ways because the Philippines and some other countries have, have very harsh drug laws. But um, th- there is a nation, a Western nation, uh, that uh, has extraordinarily low drug use rates and is busy lampooning the United States for their openness to drug reform that's going on right now. And it's not North Korea. Yeah, it's a European nation? Correct. Um, boy, that's interesting. I did not, I did not know this. Um, France. Nope. Austria. Switzerland. Keep Ger- trying. Germany. You're never going to get it. Or oh. maybe you will eventually. There aren't that <laughs> well, many European nations. Sweden. I, really? Sweden. Sweden, right? And again, this is where, again, you know, this is my so much there there, right? Now, when you tell people North Korea has incredible amount of pot availability, well, two things come to mind. Maybe this is really why Dennis Rodman spends so much time over there. But <laughs> even more seriously, in a nation that is so, so totalitarian and seems so austere, uh, it may be the case that this is the opiate of the masses, quite literally. This, right? Yeah, this and, is the Soma. This is yeah, the Soma. And yeah. so, you know, for good or for bad, right. I think it's interesting. And again, you know, whatever your normative advocacy perspective is, it's worth kind of understanding that and sort of integrating that with, a, you know, we obviously use North Korea. Of course, we don't want to become like that nation. So is that an argument against marijuana reform or is it no, things are so different that that's not something to worry about? And Sweden, I think mostly for cultural reasons, has this incredible history against what we think of now as sort of illegal narcotic use. And they are quite uh, pompous relatively speaking, for Swedes about their sense that they're a great nation because nobody uses drugs. Nah, and, but, they, but they're just across the water from the Netherlands. True. <laughs> right? Well, so they go on holiday over and there, And there's sure. also a great deal of alcohol consumption, and uh, I think, in Sweden, historically, uh, and, uh, although it's also now taxed at an extremely high rate and perhaps to discourage it. But, right, but right. so, I mean, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. Correct. Absolutely, no doubt about it, although here's where... A very, very important point about the Netherlands, which, again, I only learned about through my students. So one of the joys of the marijuana class was to have the students do uh, class presentations like many people do in a seminar. But it's, it's not an overstatement to say I learned so much more from the students, not just because they did a fantastic job with their presentations, but they had access to and were so engaged in presenting material for a course like this, including in one class a student Skyped in a college classmate who was running a marijuana farm in Colorado, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, that was just remarkable at every level. And he had access to a person there that I, you know, I couldn't get access to or might not be able to. The other point was um, students who were very much interested in these international stories, looked at Portugal, looked at the Netherlands and the, the, the story of the Netherlands is much more uh, complicated than we as tourists have come to understand, right? So we as tourists think, oh, you go over to Amsterdam and you can go get high legally and look at these videos from, you know, CNN or whatever that show people going in and getting different strains of pot and isn't that great and funny and ha ha ha. Um, well, it's like we think of every other country. I mean, you know, so that you, you, have a, you have a list of things. Right. And for the Netherlands, it is, it's wooden shoes, windmills, dikes that sometimes leak and pot right. and prostitution. Right, right, right. Right. right? And- and in the the very interesting story about pot there, though, and again, it's an interesting story that that may valuably or maybe not so valuably inform. And, and I got this from the student who came up and found a wonderful thirty minute segment 
that they showed in the class, you know, in a, a long video through YouTube of a, of a very serious effort to do journalism, to really look into what the, the known as coffee shops uh, over there and, and what was working and what wasn't working, what drove the Netherlands to take this approach. And the Netherlands, critically, it's not a legalization approach at all. It is a pure decriminalization approach. And it's based around the idea of people are going to do this anyway. Let's have them do this in a safe place so that we can, A, have it outside of other communities, right? So the people who want to do this gravitate towards one area. And actually, the coffee shops themselves are very, very strict that you're not allowed to do other drugs there, right? It's sort of, you know, based in the assumption that this is a... This is no, not, no outside food or beverage type rule. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. and, yeah. and um, uh, you know, again, it, it's created an environment that allows the underinformed to say, ah, let's look at tourism and all of that. But it is really not at all comparable to what's being tried uh, in... Uh, Colorado and Washington, or even, you know, I think a safer way to describe it would be imagine if, and arguably you already have this, right, you know, at every college campus, we kind of accepted and took as a given, go ahead, drink and smoke pot as much as you want there, and you'll never get in trouble, right? And the reason I emphasize that point is because if that was our norm here in America, and then a whole bunch of people tried to come up with some good public policy. Well, well, let's now look 20 years later. We've been letting college kids drink and smoke as much as they want on campus. What's the impact of that on campus, right? And so the reason I'm really hypersensitive is various folks in the modern debate have been pointing to the Netherlands as a failed experiment in legalization. And that may be true, but it's a, it's a dynamic failed experiment that is different in kind than what Portugal's trying out, for example, and it's different in kind than what we're doing here in America now. And again, this is where, yet again, I get back to there's so much there there. Uh, these international stories are themselves so salient, and this gets back to the, the, the first way you framed it when we sort of tried to turn from the, the social story to the legal story. Um, obviously, and again, this is what students tap into very quickly, you know, the social norms of North Korea versus the social norms of Sweden versus the social norms of America, you know, are different for a variety of historical and geographical reasons. Uh, but we're all people, right? And so there is a commonality to both drug use and perceptions of drug use that is, you know, global, right, universal. And that's yet again where I find it so valuable to have these conversations when, uh, though obviously crime and punishment is a universal phenomenon, you know, a variety of different cultural norms when it comes to, you know, whether or not uh, adultery should be legal or not, or whether or not, uh, you know, a variety of other things that we treat either, you know, as, as part of liberty and other countries treat as, as something that the criminal justice system uh, needs to focus on. Uh, drug use and abuse, again, is something that, that, that has a commonality to it that facilitates with this international comparative discussion and ability for students to say, well, what are, you know, how limited are the legal levers? Right. And, right. Uh, you know, and, and I guess here's the other part of it too, which, you know, maybe gets back to a discussion of legislation and regulation classes. Actually in America, what we may have a most robust example of is though the levers might be limited, there are so many different switches and buttons on the levers. Right. So yeah. whether it's a criminal justice switches and button, whether it's a regulatory one, whether it's a 
federally imposed one, whether it's a state by state, you know, laboratories of democracy one, whether it's a local taxing or right, exactly. Yeah. And in fact, here's another piece and another piece that's been fascinating both to watch it unfold, but also to lead me to start to frame some interesting and dynamic academic questions that I want to start looking into that again, um, are, are part and parcel of some things that come up in criminal justice writ large, but is again, finding extraordinary expression in this era of marijuana reform, uh, we've telescoped out, or at least I've suggested telescoping out and looking at the international story and the comparative uh, regulatory regimes internationally. But then you can telescope in and compare not just state by state, but county by county, locality by locality, right? And, you know, this is coming out in a variety of ways as a matter of local government law, right? And so uh, we're seeing at the state Supreme Court level in California, in Colorado, and other jurisdictions, different rules about whether state-level reform, especially when it's state-level reform through initiative, which of course is always sort of a bizarre way to amend laws, although still a a very interesting way to amend uh, our laws or to build something into a state constitution, whether that preempts localities from carving out their own rules and regulations. Well, this is what we already do with alcohol. Correct. Sort of, right? Sort of with a a whole bunch of very different and still very dynamic uncertainties, right? But but my sense with alcohol, I don't know if you, is that most people perceive the, um, you know, here in Georgia, there are different rules about whether you can sell alcohol on Sunday and what kind of alcohol you can sell and which kinds of restaurants you can sell, what kind of licenses you need. That this that, uh, county you know, by county, I mean, yeah, it, can differ it, quite dramatically. Exactly, county by county, and and the way I perceive it, maybe this is not the way other people perceive it here. I don't know. Is that that these different rules don't really? First of all, they have no kind of on the ground effect in terms of consumption for the most part. Uh, you know, that's an empirical hypothesis, and I don't know the answer to it. And it's um, important. And again, let me let me pause on that one. Right? Yeah, yeah. So what some of the interesting data that's coming out about. Um, whether or not increased marijuana use may be affecting drug driving and the relationship that it has to um, drunk driving, there is a concern. I think there's a good reason to be concerned that a lot of our zoning and regionalization that requires people, especially in, in more uh, suburban and rural areas, to get in their car and go to a place to drink alcohol in order to be able to do it in a socially acceptable or fun way right. and then get back in their car and hit somebody, um, you know. Yeah, think, the, the funniest thing are minimum parking requirements for bars, right? <laughs> I mean, this is <laughs> this is where our land use law is, is exactly at cross purposes with our, say, human life preservation laws. Um, right, right, yeah. And and again, I guess here's here's the point. Here's the point that that you're right that because we've settled on a set of norms in the wake of you know t- having a constitutional prohibition on alcohol. We would think it's outrageous if my county or neighborhood had a restriction that said, I'm not allowed to drink beer on my front yard, right? But I don't think it's at all implausible in the short term that some counties will start saying, because, and I'm focused on this because already Colorado law says you're not allowed to smoke in public. So your marijuana use has to be in a private setting. Right, Um, right. now, Now, again, whether and how... We're going to call restaurants private settings. I mean, that that's already going to sort of be determined on the ground in a variety of kinds of ways. But suppose a local, and again, I would be the first one who might be eager to have that in my neighborhood as I look out the window doing this 
podcast from home, you know, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like to have my next door neighbors smoking pot on their front yard every day. Right. And, you know, whether we're going to get to that, right. Whether we think the, maybe that's just because you're an old fogey Doug. that you see, that's the thing like with, like with alcohol, I think, you know, I don't know how many people around the time that prohibition ended had similar fears about, Right, the, the licentiousness which would follow, but I, I was right. gonna, I was gonna mention that with the local, like the the local variation in alcohol laws. I, I, I just get the sense that these don't really reflect like deep seated local differences. I mean, they do to some extent because it's less likely that a county will liberalize its alcohol laws. I guess depending on the amount of, uh, uh, um, usually kind of fundamentalist. Uh, belief in the area. Right. So I'm not saying that there's no reflection of actual local values. It's just that from a modern perspective, county by county differences in alcohol consumption yep. seem to me to be uh, more or less, I mean, they, they seem somewhat arbitrary and well, probably but, more key towards like taxation and the, the help for your local restaurant industry and the, you know, that seems to be more. But we're looking at it, uh, we're looking at it. It's important in the alcohol example. It's important to incorporate as well. The fact that we're looking at it uh, 80 years in the rearview mirror. Correct. Right. And, um, and I want to I go two layers. Not, not eight minutes in the rearview mirror, which Correct. is what we are with Washington and Colorado. Yeah. What, do you, what are your two layers? What are your two but layers? The two yeah. layers. One is that may be a story of the dominance of economic forces. Right. So my right. sense is the reason we don't have um, a set of regulations that say you can uh, we encourage you and we want you to only drink beer and wine at home. So that we have a taxation and a, and a variety of schemes that highly incentivize you economically to only use at home is because the beer and wine lobby is very effective at saying that will kill us. Oh, and by the way, so does the restaurant lobby. And so does a variety of other corresponding economic sources have an ability to say and use the legal levers that are there to try to ensure consumption is high, right. relatively speaking, and the industry has a legitimacy uh, that ensures, this is really what I think it is, ensures that they themselves are spending all their time and energy culturally and socially acclimating us to the silliness of of a prude like me saying, I don't want people drinking beer on their front yard, right? And my guess would be, I I know you guys aren't in Utah, right? But if you're in a community with lots of Mormons, it's a different story. Because it, you know, but but that itself is a story of Mormons being a minority everywhere else, but there, right? Right. And so, right. you know, that's that's one part of it. Part two. So first is, and, and this is actually where I think the future of marijuana law and policy is going is if and when economic forces become profound enough that they're in a position to see incredible reasons why they need to uh, sort of force the law to move in a way. Uh, that will make the kind of marginal citizen who doesn't really feel strongly about this one way or another say, yes, pot use is good rather than pot use is bad. Um, you know, that's when we're going to hit the tipping point. It's when the economics are there. And of course, not such as a tipping point, right? That's a cascade point because once you get to that point, then those people who think pot use is not bad but good are a little bit more comfortable going to the restaurant where they let people have pot infused soups or whatever the case may be right and again here's where the parallel to alcohol is so incredible uh not just when you look at the history of alcohol prohibition and realize that even rum cakes were arguably 
a violation of federal law in the 1920s. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but even more profoundly, the ways in which it was an economic story that had, at its heart of heart brought prohibition down, right? It was the Great Depression and the reality that an extraordinary number of jobs that people could still remember being in place in a pre-prohibition era, uh, we wanted there, right? And huh. here's again where, you know, there's, there's, there's two stories of history. One story of history is, though a current generation is comfortable with drug use, they don't have either a memory of or even a, a way to have salience. What would a truly legalized and socially accepted marijuana industry look like? Yeah, but we, yeah, and and let me say two things. One, we obviously can see that with respect to alcohol. Here's where, for me, I discovered through teaching this class that at this particular moment, historically, one of the very interesting parallels to focus on and to think about and to watch is actually not alcohol. It's not tobacco. It's gambling. Because oh, yeah. gambling, gambling was something that not only was kind of moralistically seen as a bad thing but the perception that kind of the social harms of gambling even if we were kind of agnostic as to whether it's a good or bad thing was so profound that we ought not be kind of actively involved in promoting gambling well and you know, and, whether- and and there are you know it is undeniably true that pe- some people's lives are ruined by gambling indisputably right, right. and yeah. and that there are also all sorts of different kinds of collateral harms that come from excessive gambling or um, you know, kind of related activities that go along with gambling and corruption and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So However, it's not. So it's not just a story about scaremongering. I mean, they're real right, social they're ills. Real harms, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. And yet, uh, when a state can make literally millions of dollars in tax revenues, not only do they no longer prohibit gambling, they run it. Right. I mean, these are state lotteries. Oh, and by the way, they then get together and they run mega lotteries that everybody in the nation, when the pot gets high enough thinks it's our obligation to go out and buy a ticket. This sounds right? like the, this sounds like the sovereign equivalent of indecent proposal. <laughs> where, where like Woody Harrelson is the state, right? And, <laughs> you know, another thing that I think is so interesting about these topics is the way that it and that makes it feel like such a wide open um, thing right now in this period of transition is that it really does completely scramble the some of the traditional right left stuff and Absolutely. so you and so you feel like it's more fresh and interesting as a topic so for example mother jones has done some interesting coverage on the way in which even in the era now in california where it's medical marijuana there isn't the recreational marijuana of washington colorado um uh and with trespass grows on national or tribal lands in, in california um you know, big, big pot is big ag. Yeah. Right. So yeah. these are industrial level agricultural activities that in, use an enormous amount of water, an enormous amount of electrical energy. If you're growing inside, which means an enormous amount of, you know, electrical power, either from dams or from coal fired by, uh, cold, uh, coal fired power plants or whatever. So environmentalists, where am I going with that? Environmentalists yeah. who you might think in sort of some crude left-right diagram, you would put them yeah. on the left and you'd put marijuana on the left. Well, what if your environmental sensibilities are that that uh, the explosion of marijuana will be an explosion of environmental 
agricultural catastrophe, yeah, right? Yeah, that, well, uh, so all these things are getting scrambled. Like, oh, yeah. and, and your North Korea example is a great example for the same for the same thing. It just totally like, wait a minute, my greatest global ally is North Korea. That doesn't sound too great. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I don't care what you're talking about. If that's your right. sentence, it's not a great right. sentence. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, it, it's that makes it that much more interesting, and 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 it feels just like it's been cracked open into a fresh air where you get to rethink a bunch of stuff. Let, let me load Doug up with one more observation that makes it sure. scrambled, uh, and then um, you know we're running long. But uh, I can't, there's so many issues here. Uh, the one other issue is that are there other uh, and to what ex- extent do we have experience with uh, uh, um, something which has been heavily criminalized at the federal level, decriminalized at the state level to the extent so that there is like not only non-cooperation, but like antagonism between right. criminal justice efforts. Um, how is that even going to work? Because I, you know, I know some of the stuff that, you, that you've written about and others have pointed out is the fact that, you know, um, you know, banks won't, t- won't take money from right. uh, these be- because it's a matter of federal law. They can't, this is illegal activity. They can't take, uh, uh, they can't. So, so marijuana dispensaries, they can't have bank accounts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, so this whole area, I mean, and so are a, they all getting robbed, and that's a local law enforcement concern. And I mean, you know, so yeah, so, right. and 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 you know, to me, from the criminal justice perspective, I'm I'm loving the kind of state federal comparisons, and also the uh, inevitability of where do we invest resources, and is that a good investment of resources? And you know, one of the other things that's coming up, and um, again, it gets to how many different ways you can crack this stuff open and think about not just how you'd leverage facts if you're an advocate, but what facts would be healthy or not so healthy to leverage in different kinds of ways, right? So, for example, um, there's some recent statistics came out as to the number of marijuana-related arrests in Washington State since the initiative passed. And, of course, it's gone from, you know, 6,000 a year to 60, right? And <laughs> then you take that and you go, oh, good, we have cops who can do other stuff. And then you ask yourself, wait a minute. If I'm a hardcore libertarian and I'm worried not just about marijuana arrests, but I'm also <laughs> worried about, you know, cops now having more time to, you know, sit and do NSA snooping or to get online and pretend to be 12 years old to try to get, uh, you know, people to, to do sex offenses or whatever, you know. Uh, yes, I like the idea that the cops aren't wasting their time on uh, marijuana uh, activities, but they're not getting fired, right? We're not really reducing the criminal justice footprint there. Now, again, this is where you might be able to then leverage a more tough on crime folks, you know, and say, look, this is a great thing because now these cops who we're still going to hire can invest more time and energy on going after real bad guys, right? And so, you you know, absolutely uh, the left-right stuff is scrambled, but it's scrambled not just sort of looking backward and seeing different folks come in in different kinds of ways, but it's scrambled as to, hmm, okay, uh, Yes, it's true that there are some agricultural forces who actually want to encourage marijuana legalization because they could see incredible crop opportunities in America, right? So part of the story in California particularly is, as I understand it, and uh, I don't know this firsthand, but it's a reasonable report, you know, in the same kind of way that I guess South America is great for coffee and, and you know, cocoa leaves, I've heard people describe California as the perfect climate for the best marijuana grows, right? And so, you know, whether that's accurate or not, the idea that, you know, California could see this as a boom industry, not just, you know, vis-a-vis California, but if we get a legalized national market, 
you know, that they become the, the uh, you know, top vineyards, as if it were, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, compared to other places where they're kind of growing the cheap stuff that, you I, know, you buy I think, I think you, I think you mean the best marijuana terroir. Yeah, I, think that's what <laughs> I don't know what the, I don't know what the word is. Right, yeah, to, <laughs> to figure that out. But then, and then here's again, you know, kind of just another piece and another piece that, that um, you know, not only is so much fun, but that I think the challenge over time is going to be figuring out when you're teaching or when I'm teaching a marijuana courses, which set of topics, you know, do I want to sort of, sort of, sort of dig into that much, that much grander is, um, you know, as we think about levels of government and as we think about the politics, there is a tendency for good or for bad that all politics becomes national, even as we recognize that all politics is local, right? That so, yeah. you know, even the local politicians you know, kind of have to tell a story that resonates with or without Obama or with or without the Tea Party, what or what, whatever. And yet, I'd like to believe, maybe this is wishful thinking more than it is uh, realistic, uh, that, that the dynamic nature of these issues with respect to marijuana in particular, drugs more generally, because they are inherently based on a variety of different local conditions, right? That the localism that I do think is going to emerge here may create a different kind of space for political sophistication, right? So it would be, look, I want the feds to take this off schedule one and create some freedom uh, for the states and, among other things, allow there to be banking and so on and so forth. But I'm actually comfortable with my state only having medical marijuana and not recreational marijuana, right? And again, whether that's going to happen in the short term is interesting, whether any of that's sustainable. Right. So the so the fascinating leading anti-reform organization that's developed is a group called Project Sam uh, and their whole shtick, for lack of a better describing word, is, uh, look, we don't favor a criminal justice approach to marijuana use. And we even recognize that there could possibly be some medical benefits. But what we're afraid of is big marijuana. That's the equivalent of big tobacco. Yeah. And. We think what's scary is not people using marijuana. What we think is scary is the creation of a mega industry that profits off of getting people addicted to something that clearly isn't good for them. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to that concern. Again, what's fascinating is to watch how they're leveraging that, right? And how they're not saying, we don't want another big pharma, right? They're not saying, we don't want another big oil, right? They say, we don't want another big tobacco. Now, obviously, at one level, that seems very salient because we're talking about a smoked product. Uh, but at the same time, it's so fascinating again, because, and this gets back to where we started to me, what makes tobacco use so radically different is most of elite society. I won't say civil society because I do think there's an elitism to, uh, the modern norms about tobacco is that any use is bad use when it comes to tobacco. Right. Right. And and again, that's where you actually get to start to see some conservative pushback. Right. The elitism over, you know, no one can smoke here or, you know, smoke free, whatever the case may be. And whether that is from a public health perspective, a valuable way to go. Again, it's where I'll come back to wondering. Can we have a space where the average person who doesn't think a lot about this can feel comfortable with hating people who smoke tobacco 
either because of the secondary effects or whatever it is, their, you know, our own paternalism and our desire to help people f- to stop killing themselves and hating big tobacco, for that matter, uh, but then be comfortable with people smoking marijuana and the development, which I do think is at some level inevitable, of big companies who profit from getting people to use marijuana. Yeah, right? there's a problem here, right, with how uh, uh, what, what the story is for how, like, rational regulation um, become, you know... Get, uh, is put in place. So with right. with like with cigarettes the way we see, you know, we're we're kind of back and forth and there are, you know, litigation is kind of uh, um constantly kind of pushing us between different poles, but it we seem to have settled on banning sales to kids, maybe even uh criminalizing possession by kids in some cases, um uh, banning advertising so some information controls. Um there seems to be a move towards must carry warnings, right? So uh, and and exactly the scope of that. So it's a and then high taxes. Right. So uh, there's a kind of a bundle of things that we've done uh, uh, in order to dissuade. And enormously limiting the places you can use it. And I think out of a perspective, yes, exactly. And that may be the biggest one, right? Is trying to remove the instances in which people would encounter it, right? Behavior, yeah. and, and I think the, you know, at least uh, one part of elite conception, I certainly have this because, you know, I, I just hate cigarette smoke. But, um, you know, and that's... I'm a product of my time, probably. Right. Um, is that it does? It's such an addictive uh, chemical, nicotine, that it does seem like the a massive amounts of money that people who are addicted to it spend is at some point mainly to re- uh, um, to bring the body back to a state it would have been at had they never smoked in the first instance, right? I mean, yeah. the, and the, the need for the drug provides the impetus to spend money to get the drug. And yeah. that seems to be the kind of pattern that we want to help people not fall into. Yeah. And so our, um, our, our we've got a bundle of regulations on tobacco meant to kind of further that policy of making sure people understand that they can fall into that trap. Yeah. Uh, uh, etc. With dr- so here's the the, the the potential problem with with drugs and in particular now with marijuana. How do we get to a rational bundle of regulations? And again, I'm not saying we have that yet with respect to tobacco. But if we wanted to get there, when you have states which are moving towards de- decriminalization, where the feds have kind of tacitly agreed, at least for this administration, it's not even clear how much this is for this administration, but uh, not to interfere so much. But where there are a whole bunch of regulations which make state experimentation difficult. So it seems like the regulatory space is not there because the states can't be too aggressive with shaping marijuana policy because they just don't have access to all the levers, right? And the feds, for either public choice reasons or just, you know, uh, because of national norms or um, uh, uh, as reflected in presidential elections, they can't change a lot of those levers, Um I, anyway, I, I don't see how, in the, you know, it seems like we have a, a, a dramatic gulf between federal policy and the policies, say, in Washington state. We, we certainly do, although here's where I'm tempted to be Panglossian at times, right? Maybe we've sort of backed our way into a very effective way to kind of, you know, get our toe in this interesting water, right? Because, I mean, I certainly think, and, and this is to some degree what I think Project Sam is trying to make sure, right, that one of the many ways that people are talking about how we can get this more sensible is uh, the feds will reschedule marijuana as a Schedule II drug, and that creates more room for medical research. That creates more room for authorizing banks to be involved in you know, taking money from people who are involved in working with the substance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but maybe, you know, uh, kind of getting back to the different kind of paternalism uh, at, a, at, a, at a meta level with governments, right? Having the feds be there as the unable to but 
available to come down on the kids trying things out if it starts looking like they're making too much of a habit of it, right? right. Yeah. And, and, and so certainly here's the thing that's interesting, and again, it's going to be interesting to see uh, when and how it moves. Um, you know, there's not going to be big marijuana as long as banks can't take the money, as long as they can't have credit cards, right? You know, that, that, that very impediment to rational business operations that's in place right now may be ensuring that these stay small, they stay mom and pop. And actually, I, I emphasize this point because I think one of the most interesting persons who have been, who's been thinking about this against the backdrop of broader drug policy for a very long time is a guy named Mark Kleeman, uh, who's, I think, a public policy guy out of California, but he became kind of the go-to person um, in, in Washington State as they started to legalize. And his main shtick is, I think it's a very good idea uh, to decriminalize and legalize some of this, but I think any economies of scale become very, very scary. So his take is every bit of our regulation should be about trying to ensure this is legal, but only legal in a mom and pop kind of way. And what's again, fascinating. And here's where I'm way out of my league in terms of, you know, law and economics and things like that. But, you know, okay, what other industries kind of function like that, where we think the key to it being a successful industry from a social policy perspective is it, it, it's inefficient in some sense. Right, right, right. right. And, and, and so... What we uh, need is know, like the opposite of Wickard versus Filburn for marijuana. <laughs> like maybe. O- only homegrown wheat, right? Right. Although yeah. that's what's funny about Gonzalez v. Raich, right? Is in some sense, exactly, Gonzalez yeah. v. Raich said, you know, we're not going to say the Commerce Clause limits the the desire of the feds to say you can't have homegrown weed and right. it's really it's really interesting to imagine and again imagine not only because uh, I think Gonzalez v Rach came out wrong from my own you know policy perspective and my own eagerness to have the commerce clause mean something but even more fundamentally if that exact case gets litigated now in a post Obamacare universe does it come out the same way and would among other things, there'd be people writing briefs in support of it coming out the other way saying, look, it's inevitable we're going to have a marijuana industry and the best way to have it would be one where the feds can only get seriously involved when people are dealing this outside of state lines. Hmm. And again, this, this is one of those, you know, just to have an excuse to have students read Gonzalez v. Rach is a good thing, but particularly to how amazing it seems that less than a decade ago right not only was that not seen as as big a case as it's seen as now in the wake of obamacare and the the right's eagerness to to put limits on what the federal government can do in an obama era but even more so you know kind of the idea that both left and right would be so comfortable uh saying of course the feds can tell Angel race, she can't grow medicine in her own backyard because marijuana is evil, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and the, again, the, the, you know, among the things that, you know, Wicker is a good example, right? You make students read about Wicker in 1944 and they just can't even understand the transition that's about a post-World War I and post-World War II market economy that makes um, the ideas there different in kind in 1940-whatever than it is now, right? Well, in the same sort of way with marijuana – this is all moving so incredibly fast. You know, the students remember where they were in 2005. <laughs> right, you know, right, when they yeah, read yeah. that, they're like, oh my God, that's right. And then 
again, this is where I fast forward another 10 years and maybe we'll do a podcast and the backlash will have kicked in and we'll look back and we'll like, you know, this, this kind of feeling of inevitability for reform will look an awful lot different. Right. And again, that's, that's the other piece of advice I give. And it was another thing that actually motivated me to teach this course is uh, at the start of my marijuana course, I did almost a full month on uh, the history and, and uh, law around uh, alcohol prohibition. And mm-hmm. again, part of what was valuable was to ensure a kind of humility about legal reform in the United States, because among the things that comes up, I show them the Ken Burns documentary over a three-week period and two-hour intervals, is hearing the, the dries and the temperance folks not just celebrate uh, when we get the Prohibition Amendment in, in our Constitution, but express this utopian vision of how not only great society will be when nobody has kind of had their history of, of being, you know, sort of drugged with, with alcohol, but also how, you know, it, it's going to be inevitable that this is no longer a part of American history, be, you know, and isn't that wonderful that we've progressed this way, right? Drink, drinking is over. Drinking yeah. is over. In the and, same way and, that when Obama was elected, people thought racism was over. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and, and not only is it, you know, you, with a little historical perspective, you see how silly that is, but I particularly enjoyed celebrating the last class of my marijuana seminar, bringing in beer completely legally, because everybody in my class was over 21, and imagining what the people we were talking about at the beginning of the semester, who thought this was the most evil thing to be doing, and how hard... <laughs> And how horrible it was that, you know, there were there were, you know, foreign influences that wanted to have everybody in America drunk, you know, just how they would react that a law professor would be celebrating the end of a course. And of course, then we all talked about, well, you know, 50 years from now, you know, is a version of me going to bring in pot for a version of them. And, you know, that's. At one level, that seems inconceivable. At another level, that's the exact same story. Well, well, if we do have you back, in, I hope we have you back before. But if we do have you back in ten years, <laughs> I, I, we will certainly play as a bumper. You know, this section, Sounds and, and and then we will know. Like, are we going to be sitting around in ten years, like smoking a joint while we're doing the podcast? <laughs> uh, um, a lot of a lot of people would say that would probably make it better. Right. I don't know, but um, I, uh, I, 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 I'm certainly looking forward to when the. Uh, Doug Berman uh, version of uh, hologram has the time to, uh, in a futuristic world, figure out what a podcast is. Uh, right. that, that entity will do a fantastic job of showing how <laughs> everything this version of Doug Berman said over the last hour and a half was just brilliant beyond compare. And so, uh, in fifty um, years, though, we'll be trying to figure out whether our downloaded brains can smoke some kind of marijuana. It seems right. like you know you have to figure out how to create some kind of computer marijuana interface. <laughs> uh, uh, believe you me, somebody's working on an app for that right now. I but, bet. Uh, I bet. I, in fact, I'm in the wrong field. I got to get coding. <laughs> I got to get coding on that. Right, right, right. And so again, I, I am so grateful. This has been so much fun, and and it really has been terrific. A no, much better way to spend a Friday afternoon than than finishing the article I'm supposed to be writing. And so uh, I, I'm grateful for the the platform, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to linking to it in a variety of ways. And I especially, my biggest takeaway besides wanting to do this again and maybe every Friday afternoon, yeah, uh, but is 
is um, that you got so excited about the idea of a marijuana reader. And so my afternoon is going to be writing to Alex and saying, we've got to get this done before anybody else comes up with it and does it better than we do. So yeah. oh, as, soon um, as, as soon as it comes out, we'll, we'll have you back on to talk about it. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, because there's so many issues we didn't talk about. I mean, that, you know, yeah, there we were barely so got started. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that. And my students will tell you uh, that's kind of my norm because I always start my class by putting up on a uh, you know on the projector what I plan to cover and and it usually has four or five bullet points and if I get through one, <laughs> but I this tend is satisfied. This is what I tell the students too. That this is the law. Like you know when you're learning the law, you're it's like you're coming in in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, and yeah. inevitably you're leaving before the conversation is over. You yeah. know, and so you know this is this is the uh, Doug Berman episode of Oral Argument Part One. Oh, wonderful! So we'll, well see. We'll see. Whatever, whatever you want to do, Part Two, I'm 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 all for it. And uh, again, I I'm I'm really grateful and appreciative for you guys making the time and being engaged. And uh, I will be linking away and and staying in touch. I'm sure. Awesome! Thanks so much. Thanks, Doug. Doug. All right. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Take care.